Well, good afternoon. My name is Don Schwer, and I want to welcome you to our podcast, where top healthcare executives share their personal stories and leadership strategies. And with us today is Frank LaFosto. Frank has over 30 years' experience in corporate America with companies such as American Hospital Supply, Baxter International, Allegiance Healthcare, and also as a Senior Vice President of Organizational Effectiveness at Cardinal Health. Frank also has 10 years within the consulting world for both public and private organizations. And along with his co-author, Carl Larson, Frank is a best-selling author of three empirically researched books, including Teamwork, What Must Go Right, What Can Go Wrong, When Teams Work Best, and The Humanitarian Leader in Each of Us. A large part of Frank's career has been spent conducting executive developmental assessments with individuals to help them achieve their potential, both within a public and a private sector. And with that said, as a brief summary, I want to welcome Frank to our podcast. Frank, thanks so much for joining us. Oh, Don, thank you very much. Uh, I'm honored to be part of this, uh, this podcast. Frank, you certainly have a significant body of work that you've researched, not only the three books that you've co-authored on teamwork and leadership, but also the hundreds of corporate executive assessments that you've done to help support executive development. If you take a look back on this body of research and someone asks you what matters most, both personally and professionally, what would you share with that individual? Well, Don, at this point in, in my life, my answer to the question actually starts with the end in mind. And I would put it this way, uh, at a 50,000 foot level, wouldn't it be nice to know what matters most in the end before you get to the end? And from my perspective and my observation, there are a couple of related insights that yield the same conclusion. The first is for anyone who's ever walked through a cemetery, uh, one of the things you easily notice is that no headstone has a job title or salary on it. It's all about relationships. Beloved father, wonderful wife, devoted uh, husband. Uh, it's all about the quality of the person as seen through the eyes of others because of the relationships that they had. The second observation, very similar to that, is I was having dinner with a friend of mine who was, um, until recently, president of a hospice organization. They had hospice centers all around the country. And I asked my friend Larry, um, I said, Larry, do you ever, you ever notice what people focus on toward the end, what they say? And by the way, hospice does a wonderful job of helping people make their transition. And, and Larry said, he said, oh, Frank, he said, you know, one of the things we do is we bring people together and encourage that they have a conversation. And he said, what we've noticed is there are five things that our observations have logged that people say, people who are, people who are dying at the end, what they say to the people around them. And those five things are, thank you, I'm sorry, I forgive you, I love you, goodbye. Again, thank you, I'm sorry. I forgive you. I love you. Goodbye. And the interesting thing when he was telling me that, the interesting, the interesting thing to me is that all five of those things are relationship matters. Thank you for what you've done. Thank you for being my friend. Thank you for, um, you know, being my father, my, my wife. Uh, I'm sorry if I hurt you. Uh, I forgive you. Forgiveness is, uh, you know, sets everybody free. 
um, I love you, uh, an extension of passion toward the feelings toward someone, and goodbye. Thank you. I'm sorry. I forgive you. I love you. Goodbye. All relationship issues. And when I think about at this point in my life, and I'm now in my 70s, looking back, um, it's very clear to me that uh, end of life, and any end of life regrets are most likely to involve relationships because relationships are all that matters. None of us think about, oh, I wish I could have, you know, eaten more rice cakes. Uh, nobody, nobody, you know, says, gee, wish I would have, wish I would have bought a fourth car, bought a, bought a fourth car, wish I would have bought a, 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 another, a third home. No one talks about that kind of stuff. It's all about relationships, how we connect with people in our lives and as friends. How can we connect better with people, Frank? How can we improve the relationships that we have? Well, it all begins, and, and it all begins all success in life, and certainly with relationships. All success begins with self-awareness, and it's been talked about for thousands of years. You know, it's, if, you, if you look back at Greek philosopher Socrates, in fact, at his trial, uh, he said, the unexamined life is not worth living. It's very important to know about oneself, right? Um, the Swiss psychiatrist, Carl Jung, said, everything that irritates us about others can lead us to an understanding of ourselves. Um, Russian psychologist, Lev Semenovich Vygotsky, who did marvelous work studying what, it, what human thought is all about, said, through others, we become ourselves. In other words, self-awareness helps us avoid this partial picture of ourselves, the picture that typically is overweighted with positive traits. It's insufficient to see ourselves through our positive intentions. And self-awareness is about opening up the blind spots and seeing a larger view of who we are through the eyes of others. But it's also about seeing the world more clearly, beyond our biases, beyond our raw self-interests. You know, the, the, the French-Cuban novelist, Anne uh, Nin, she said... We don't see things the way they are. We see things as we are. Our biases get in the way. Our um, ego gets in the way. Our, our views get stuck. And so that's the most important piece is, is to have self-awareness. And self-awareness is a very difficult thing to do, very difficult to step outside oneself. So rather than being ego-centered, we focus more on being other-oriented when we when we have self-awareness, and that shift can make a world of difference in the quality of the relationships in our lives. You know, we end up monitoring our own behavior and how we interact with others in our lives by focusing on them. And that's more than just a virtue, by the way, you know, an abstract concept. In the 1970s, um, several areas in the social sciences, Don, came to a very similar observation. One was in psychology, and it was called the interpersonal reflex arc, and that actually was something that was written about by, uh, here's a name from the past, Timothy Leary, uh, one of the first people mm -hmm. to experiment with um, LSD. He was a brilliant, a brilliant researcher in addition to being, um, you know, kind of on the, uh, the edge of thinking. So, but in psychology, it was called the interpersonal reflex arc. In communication, it was called the dyadic effect. And in sociology, the norm of reciprocity. And all of those conclusions kind of blended together over about a 20-year period of time. And basically, what those observations involve are a very simple conclusion, but it's a powerful one, absolutely powerful. What, what, the, what those 
three areas in the social sciences uh, conclude is 80 to 90 percent. You got to think about it. 80 to 90 percent of behavior is predictable by knowing one thing. 80 to 90 percent of how somebody is going to, what they're going to say, how they're going to say it, how they're going to respond is predictable by knowing one thing. And that is by knowing the behavior that preceded it. Whatever the behavior that precedes is likely to produce something similar in kind. People are highly likely to respond in kind to how they are treated. Kindness begets kindness. Pushy will get a pushback. Um, combative will cause a combative response. That's the way to bet. Doesn't always happen, but that's clearly the way to bet. You know, we have all known people that are so nice that if somebody were mean to that person, you'd get upset because that person doesn't deserve it. Well, right. they don't deserve it because they they don't behave that way. In other words, you know, if you think about it, 80 to 90 percent, people are likely to respond in terms of how they're treated. If, if, so if everyone around you acts like a competitive jerk, you might want to ask yourself why that might be. And furthermore, bad relationships create an incredible amount of stress, dysfunction in organizations that lead to dissolution of lifelong commitments in marriages, families, or between good friends. It's because raw self-interest gets in the way. What takes over is an attitude that I'm right, you're wrong, here's why. And so that's where, that's where it kind of all starts. So, so how do we minimize that damage? Uh, what behaviors improve relationships? Well, I think, I think there are two, two things that really matter, Don. One is asking, asking ourselves what gets in the way of our effectiveness. You know, what are our weaknesses? And by the way, weaknesses, I mean, and I've been talking with hundreds of people over the years, you know that, and trying to determine where their, where their development needs lie. Um, weaknesses come typically in two areas. One is we have the absence of something. So if you ask me, if you said, Frank, you know, I need brain surgery. You mind, can you perform it for me? I'd say, you know, Don, I've never done one, but I'm happy to take a flyer. Um, you, might, you might think, you know, <laughs> maybe. Maybe I should find someone who has done one in the past, you know. Mm -hmm. So, and I, because I would say, Don, I have the ab I, there's an absence of that skill in me. I don't have that. I can't do that. I also can't go practice law. Um, you know, I can't uh, can't pull a tooth. I'm not a dentist. So there are a lot of things that I'm that I'm not qualified to do. So one form of weakness is the absence of something. The second type of weakness, and the one that typically gets in our way, from my observation, and others may observe something else, but it's the overextension of a strength. It's when our go-to strengths, our go-to solutions get played out on everything. That's when, that's when we find ourselves, you know, because we're smart, then we're going to be smart and work our way through intellectually through everything. Because we're charming, well, I'm going to, I'll just kind of schmooze my way through this, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Or because I'm combative, I can certainly out, outpace this person, I can break them. Well, those, those strengths, when they get overextended, become horrible weaknesses. And we typically don't see it. We typically don't. It's hard for us to see. And that's where self-awareness comes into play. The second thing here is, so first is understanding what our, what our weaknesses are. And secondly, being able to get outside of ourselves and figure out how, we, how other people see us. How do other people see us? And, 
you know, that, that means getting beyond the raw self-interest. That means knowing, knowing what other people know about you. And so if you don't want feedback, and by the way, in our books, we talk about feedback as a gift. Friends don't let friends, don't let friends drive drunk. Um, it, takes, <laughs> it takes courage to give somebody feedback because you know they're not going to want to hear it. Most people don't want to be vulnerable, and feedback clearly makes you vulnerable, and it can make you defensive. When we get vulnerable, we become, we can, it's easy to become defensive. So it's very easy for someone to avoid giving us the truth about ourselves. But it's absolutely critical. If, we, if, we, if, so, if people around us believe we have an attitude of superiority or that we're always certain about everything, there's never room for another opinion, or that we can be controlling, or, or that we, or one of the worst things is we can be indifferent. You know, all those things produce defensiveness in other people. And you say, well, how can being indifferent? Doesn't that seem like you're just backing off and not getting involved? No. Let's assume you sit down with a friend of yours and, you know, two people are sitting down and they're talking and one says, gosh, you know, they're having lunch, right? And one says, um, you know, my job isn't going that well. My marriage has, is on rocks right now. It's having problems. My 13-year-old's trying to smoke the front lawn. Um, I just don't know what to do about all this. And the other person responds with, could you pass the salt? Not there's listening. a point. There's, yeah. There's a point. There's a point at which there's a point at which you say, "Wait a minute, you don't care," and not caring can make people defensive. So all of those behaviors, you know, superiority, certainty, controlling, manipulative, neutrality—all those things can cause people to to take things off track. But if we don't if we don't know we're doing them, we'll continue to do them. And a lot of those things can be seen by an individual as their strengths. To be certain, and you know, I'm clear about, and I'm you know, I I, I have. Um, I'm not uncertain about things. I know how I'm moving forward or, you know, I, I know better than other people. And, and that stuff just oozes out of people's pores. And when it does, people start backing off. And people will go to great lengths, great lengths to make a point to someone that they don't like a behavior, including getting out of an organization. You know, the, the old adage that people don't leave organizations, they leave managers. Um, there's a lot of truth to that. Or walking out of a marriage or a family member leaves home. You know, a child leaves home, doesn't want anything to do with the parents anymore. I mean, those things happen. And over the years, the, the hundreds of people that I've talked with um, in terms of development, putting together development plans to address specific needs, weaknesses, um, opportunities, it's amazing how those things come up. And those things are real. The people that matter most to us in our lives, all of a sudden, we find that they're, they've moved away. They don't want to be around us. I would assume yeah. that uh, many individuals are afraid to hear the feedback, so therefore they don't ask for it. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely, Don. It, it, again, it makes us vulnerable. It makes us vulnerable. So the first thing is, what gets in our way? How do you get in touch with that? And the second thing is to get outside ourselves. I mean, to have a good read on really what gets in our way. You know, I, when, I was, when I was in the corporation, every year I had a psychologist assess me and give me feedback every year for 30 years, every year, same guy. Well, until he passed away. And so the last nine years I had, uh, or the last five years or so I had someone else, his partner do it, but it was the same stuff every year. And, and he would tell me things, uh, because we change over time, right? You can't step in the same river twice. We change over time. And so, I mean, I hear things and I'd say, Oh gosh, you know, how can that be? And he'd say, I'm just telling you, you know, and, and I would hear things that I wouldn't like to hear, but he'd say, you want to be effective or you want to argue this? Mm -hmm. <laughs> and so there's no, there's, 
when you when you get that question put to you, there's yeah. not much can be done. Well, it's back to the point that feedback is a gift, and oftentimes people don't get it. As um, exactly as you look at your career, you you conducted hundreds of developmental assessments. Um, what have you learned about those assessments? What what have you learned about leadership in those assessments? That's a great that's a great question, Don. You know, there's my sense again, my observations. The extent to which people can build solid relationships is the extent to which they are good leaders, and the and it's what distinguishes great leaders. Again, we all proceed on limited self information. You know, the extent to which you can get someone from the outside to give you feedback is very very important. And here's a case in point. In our second book, and I always remember this because it was so uh, poignant as far as I was concerned, and Carl and I talked about this many times, of the 6,000 team members that rated their leaders, I mean, actual actual organizations, keep in mind, it took us 15 years to gather information, uh, 6,000 team members rated their leaders, and then, then the leaders rated themselves on the same set of valid and reliable questions, same set of questions. It's interesting to note that when we, when we calculated all of that, the leaders' ratings of themselves were inflated by an average margin of 50%. 5 hmm. The leaders' ratings of themselves were inflated by an average margin of 50% compared to how the people they led, people they managed, rated them. So having a consistent, honest assessment is very, very important because Again, we proceed on limited self-knowledge. And once we have information, then you can bridge the gaps. And it's best to be done early in one's career because the higher you go in an organization, the more you're told you're correct and your behavior is okay, whether it is or not. Um, I also think early in the career, you might be more receptive to this type of information. As you get older in your career, you might be a little bit more defensive. Absolutely. Absolutely, Don. That's, a, that's an excellent uh, point because as you get up in an organization, you start to rely on the decisions that you've made as, being, as you know, well, if, I, if I've gotten this far, I should trust my judgment on everything. Well, maybe, maybe not. It's good to, good to check, good to get a, uh, have a check and balance. And the only way you can do that is by getting someone who gives you good, honest feedback and tells you the truth about, you know, what gets in your way. And all of that is important going back to relationships because great leaders, the best leaders that I've seen, are people that build solid relationships. They build solid relationships and they let the relationships do the work. People, people who lead and have great relationships, they let the, they let the relationship do the heavy lifting. Uh, when a leader is liked and respected, people will go through walls for that person. In other words, they'll give their discretionary time and effort. You know, the, they'll think about problems at work while they're in the shower, while they're at a stop sign. That's you couldn't ask for more than that. And all the teams that we, when we looked at teams like the Boeing 747 team and the there were and the, the McDonald's Chicken McNugget team or the uh, uh, cardiac surgeons under Michael DeBakey and Denton Cooley down in Houston. I mean, these are these are there were leaders there that attracted that kind of charisma and magnetic commitment from people. So it makes a difference. It makes a massive difference. As we dive further into the concept of leadership and we take a look back on a number of the books that you've co-authored, what does leadership mean to you, Frank? Is there a definition that comes to mind that encapsulates that 
Another great question, Don. And yes, I you know I've seen probably <laughs> there there are hundreds there are hundreds of definitions of, of leadership. Anybody who's written about it has a definition. When I take all of them into account, one of the easiest places to go would be to Peter Northhouse's book entitled Leadership Principles: Theory and Practice. Theory and Practice. And it's got the last hundred years of leadership uh, styles and leadership theory, etc. And there are a lot of definitions in there. Certainly not all, all of them. Again, there are hundreds. When I take all of them into account, for me, it comes down to this, a very practical understanding, and it's one that I have observed numerous times with my own eyes with good versus average leaders. And it comes out to this. It's all about building collective energy toward accomplishing a meaningful goal. Building collective energy toward accomplishing a meaningful goal. And those eight words to me have a lot of meaning because collective energy means that you get contagion going among the people who are working. There are different types of energy, as we talk about in our second book. There's physical energy. There's uh, mental energy. There's spiritual energy. And by that, I don't mean religious energy. I mean spiritual in terms of the spirit of the team, you know, team spirit. People working together and helping one another and recognizing they're all in it together. And all of that energy can either go toward the accomplishment of a, of a meaningful goal, or it can be drained off into um, things like politics, wasting people's time and energy. And so when collective energy is built toward accomplishing a meaningful goal, it gets people excited about being part of something that matters, and they know their effort is going to matter. Because you start demonstrating to them that their energy will go into the goal and that their time won't be trivialized or wasted, and which no one likes. No one likes their time trivialized or wasted. So that's the best definition. Those are the, those are the best eight words together. And I like the fact that it's a meaningful goal because there are a lot of things we do that, eh, okay, great, you know. But when a leader can articulate why something's important, that matters. So building collective energy toward accomplishing a meaningful goal. And actually getting everybody together in the same boat and rowing in the same direction is going to be critical. And, uh, <laughs> I, you know, it, I, it is. I would assume that uh, trying to accomplish that in a larger organization might be a little bit more challenging. Are there any examples you can point to that uh, stand out to you? You know, when, you, um, when, when I was at American Hospital Supply, and I started there in the 70s, uh, in 1985, we merged with Baxter Healthcare. I say merged, they actually acquired us. That's where that's where getting collective energy all moving in the same direction and everybody seeing the same thing. Because when you have you have two organizations that come together, Don, there's only so many jobs that are going to be available. You don't you don't double the population typically. And so when you have people vying for positions, et cetera. But we did it as well as it could be done. But the bottom line is that's an example where you have large organizations that the collective energy has to be emphasized and focused by the person in the corner office. And being a part of the organization at that time, I remember there was a key mantra that the uh, top executives used to keep us focused and clear in our direction. And I believe it used three C's. Um, Frank, do you remember that? And can you share a little bit more about that? Sure. Um, you know, when we... Ten years after putting American Hospital Supply and Baxter together, the company was cut in half and kind of was old American Hospital Supply minus the heart valve business and it was kind of Baxter and, you know, uh, but at any rate, uh, but there were two $5 billion companies. The company that was American Hospital Supply 
we renamed Allegiance Healthcare. And that organization uh, was run, I mean, just like a Swiss watch, in my opinion. And one of the reasons is because what we focused on was something, I, you know, that, that came out of our research in our second book, and that was a very simple equation, a very simple little mantra. And by the way, I've walked into meetings in companies that I've done consulting work after I retired, and I've seen this up on screens. <laughs> I kind of smile. Good. Yeah. But it's, it's, a, it's, a simple, it's a simple equation, but it's clarity drives confidence, confidence drives commitment. Clarity drives confidence. Confidence drives commitment. And that's how we ran the organization. Everything had to be clear to everybody because we wanted people to be confident that when they took action, when they did what they were going to do, they would be committed to it and see it through and not wonder, oh, is this the right thing? If you have clarity, you have confidence, you can have be committed to what you're doing. Great message. I'm respectful of your time, Frank, and as as we wind down, I want to uh, move on to your your third book with Dr. Larson, focusing on humanitarian leadership. You interviewed people from various parts of the world beyond the United States, Thailand, Taiwan, India, South America, Canada, etc. Can you share an example of the humanitarian leader that you came across? Oh, well, thanks for that question, Don. I I love talking about humanitarian leadership because it's one of those things that can have such a positive impact on the world. You know, we all have, we all have goals in life, you know, becoming this title or that title or having next amount of money, et cetera. But we also have a role in society. We don't just have goals. We have a role. And um, that's what humanitarian leadership means to me. And I'll, I'll give you an example of Ryan Hurljack. Ryan Hurljack was six years old from Canada. And the teacher in the first grade said, today we're going to have charity day. And so for a nickel, you can buy a pencil. For a dime, you can buy an eraser and that kind of stuff. For $5, you can get a blanket for people that you know need, need a blanket. Uh, and then she said, and for $75, you can build a water well. Well, little Ryan, the age of six, was rather confused. And as he told us when we interviewed him, uh, 10 years later, when he was 16, he said, you know, I, I was sitting there. He said, I thought there was our our town that had water, and then there was a town next to us that didn't have water. Right? The mind of a six-year-old. I mean, it doesn't get any more charming than that, right? Mm-hmm. And and as he sat there, he, he raised his hand and he said, what do you mean people don't have water? Everybody needs water. And the teacher said, well, that some people have to go a long way to get water. And the, the class asked, well, how far do they have to go? And the teacher, for lack of any other explanation, boiled it down in terms of simplicity and said, well, they have to go about 10,000 steps, about two kilometers, 10,000 steps. Ryan Hurljack got up from his desk and walked to the water fountain that was in the class. He noted that it was 10 steps away, okay, six-year-old. When he went home that night, he told his mom and dad, he said, I need $75. And they said, well, Ryan, that's a lot of money. Why do you need $75? He said, because I want to build a water well for the people in the town that don't have water. They said, well, Ryan, we're not going to give you $75, but you can work for it. So he cleaned the garage. He vacuumed. He, you know, helped wash the car. I mean, he did all kinds of things, and he got $75. The parents, I mean, great, great parents, they put him in the car, drove him a couple, couple of hours to the town in Canada that uh, where water wells are built through this company in third world countries. 
And when they got there, the guy said, well, Ryan, he said, you know, that's very noble of you. He said, but whoever told you it was $75, it's not $75, it's $2,250. And all this is in our first book, by the way, or in our, in our uh, humanitarian leader book. And Ryan looked and he said, no, anybody could have given up at that point. 75 is a long way from 2250 right? He said, he said, well, I guess I'll just have to work harder. So they got back in the car, they went home, and they had, you know, cake bakes, and they had um, all kind of things to raise $2,250. And Ryan built his first water well in a third world country when he was seven years old. He got it built. And he went to, it was over in Africa, he went and he noticed how happy the people were that they had a well and they had water. They were dancing, they were singing. I mean, it was all kind because they didn't have to walk, you know, two kilometers every day to get water or however far they had to go. When we interviewed Ryan, he was 16 years old, so 10 years had gone by. In that period of time, he had already built 630 water wells in 13 third world countries. Wow. Now, you got to pause on that for a second yeah. and, you know, ask what that means in terms of leadership, what that means in terms of relationships, what that means in terms of, of caring, you know, and a six-year-old. And by the way, geographic skirmishes in third world countries are based upon two things farmable land, drinkable water. So this young man has done more to help avoid little skirmishes and wars and, 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 you know, disagreements in third world countries than anybody I know. And I saw him, I was on the board of World of Children, a great organization, by the way. And he was there to be honored as a past recipient. And I met with him and he had just graduated college. This was just a few years back. He had just graduated college. He was no longer a little boy. And by the way, he was six foot seven and just the, the nicest young man you'd ever come across. And he had built well over a thousand. And that was four, four or five years ago, mm -hmm. a thousand water wells at that point. So heaven knows how many he's done. But here's, but here's the bottom line, Don. Here's the bottom line. I mean, when you think about, when you think about caring, the things we talked about, how do you, how do you, you know, it's all, if it's all about caring, if it's all about letting people know they matter, if it's all about letting people know that you can focus on them. It's all about getting out yourself, outside yourself and doing things that are, um, are good for the relationship, that are equally beneficial. If it's all about that, it doesn't get any more pronounced than in the mind of a six-year-old. Mm -hmm. And then the not be stymied by, you know, one of the things we talk about is sign up for the frustration, persevere. This young man saw it all the way through. And, and if a six-year-old can do that, it really raises the question, what stops the rest of us taking a leadership role and having the temperament and the stamina and the right headset to do it? And a lot has to do with the passion that he had yeah. from the beginning and kept throughout. Yeah. If you don't have yeah. that passion, the emotional belly, if you will, to, to carry it forward, yeah. you're not going to be as successful. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and that leads, you know, if we, it, but it takes us all the way back to the relationship piece. What Ryan saw was a sense of compassion with other people, empathy, you know. And, and one of the things we know about relationships, Tom, what makes relationships work and what doesn't make relationships work is what we were talking about earlier. And I want to put it in this term. Good, in good relationships, we define our place in the relationship, not over it. We define our place in the relationship, not over it. We're not better. We're not smarter. We're not superior. We're in the relationship together. And that's the way, in the mind of a six-year-old, the way I look at it is here's a young man 
who didn't say, wow, thank goodness we got water. We're lucky. No. I mean, he, he was in, in the relationship with those people that were going through this dilemma. And that's why he ended up taking action. That's a wonderful that's a, story. That's a, lesson for, that's a lesson for all of us. There's so. no doubt. With our remaining time, do you have any final thoughts you'd like to share? There's a, there's a poem, and this is the message for all of us. There's a poem by John Greenleaf Whittier. It's about a judge, and he takes his horse and cart to town every day, and he goes past a farmhouse, and he sees a young girl, and they talk every day, and she's, from a, she's poor, and he's wealthy, and they both think about how wouldn't it be nice, and you know, she dreams about being the wife of a judge, and he thinks about giving up all the craziness of his job and you know, settling down on a farm, more relaxed uh, lifestyle. But their, their layers of society were different, and so it was rather forbidden. They talked and laughed all the time, but they did nothing about it. And Greenleaf Whittier's poem, the, the last four lines, are about looking back with a rosary of regrets, right? And here's the last four lines. It's bone-chilling, and it's a message for all of us in terms of relationships now. If relationships matter, in the end, we ought to cultivate them now. And here's the line. The lines from the poem are very simple, very straightforward. And what what uh, Whittier said is, God pity them both and pity us all who vainly the dreams of youth recall. For all sad words of tongue or pen, the saddest are these. It might have been. And so I leave us with the thought that if relationships matter, we should work at them now. We shouldn't wait. Absolutely. What wise advice. <laughs> And uh, with our time running low, uh, that might be a good way for us to close out our podcast. And Frank, I want to uh, sincerely thank you again for all the time and the lessons and uh, wisdom that you've shared. It really was a pleasure having you on the podcast, and I hope we might be able to do it again soon. Well, Don, it's been my pleasure. I'm honored to have been asked. Thank you for including me. And that concludes our interview with Frank LaFosto, internationally recognized author and lecturer best-selling co-author of three books, Teamwork, What Must Go Right, What Can Go Wrong, When Teams Work Best, and The Humanitarian Leader in Each of Us. Thanks again for joining.